Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 30, and we're covering the mid-18th century, including tales of shipwrecked sailors, the art of making a masi, and dealing with the amatakati, or witches. We've heard much about the developments in the north of the Cape, the Bockefelt and the Rudesant, up to 1740. Now we'll swing our gaze to observe what was going on at the same time along the eastern Cape frontier. It's vaguely defined, at least at this time, as the area lying east of the Khamtuas River. This is important because it's here that black South Africans speaking a Bantu language first encountered white settlers, as distinct from traders or even missionaries. The Nguni people, however, had a much longer connection with Europeans. Survivors of shipwrecks starting around the mid-1500s lived amongst the Tkosa until they met survivors from other wrecks or from expeditions sent to find them. Many of these former sailors refused to return home. They were living as Tembu or Tkosa and had found the lifestyle to their liking. For example, in 1705, an expedition sent to Natal to look for timber found an Englishman living with African wives who were so well satisfied that two of the crew actually deserted to join him instead of the other way around. Two other men who survived from an early 18th century wreck on the Mpondo coast became progenitors of the clan still known as the Lungu, short for Abalungu, in other words, the White Clan. A girl wrecked with them later married Mpondo chief Kabisu. Her daughter, in turn, was met by explorer Jakob van Rienen in 1790. By then, she was an old woman, but she wasn't the only European woman who'd been saved by locals, as we're going to hear. If you consider the statistics regarding shipwrecks off the South African coast as a whole, you'll begin to understand how these first contacts between the Nguni and Europeans developed. There were almost 2,000 ships wrecked or beached off the South African coast between 1552 and the early 1900s. Most of these took place over 300 years between the 1500s and the 1800s, and probably close to half of those were logged in the coastal area between southern Mozambique and Cape Town. The most dangerous period for sailors along this coast was between May and October, the southern hemisphere winter. For instance, there were preferred seasons of sailing so as to make optimal use of the trade winds. However, with the onset of early winter synoptics, ships reaching the Cape during winter and autumn would have been subjected to cold fronts and associated bad weather. It's no surprise then that during the era of sailing ships, the majority of shipping incidents occurred off the Cape Peninsula and the southeast coast and fully justified their reputations as being the Cape of Storms and the Wild Coast, respectively. One of the most conspicuous examples of Koza hospitality in this early phase of contact between European and Nguni speakers was the consistently kind reception they gave the survivors of a shipwreck. It took the first war between the Tkosa and the Dutch much later in the 1770s to change this attitude, and even then, as sailor William Hubbley found in 1790, there were people willing to assist him. Many European castaways were given protection by the Tkosa and attached to the households of chiefs. As I've explained, many of these European men, and sometimes women, refused to leave when the opportunity developed. This is not a myth. Entire clans of people descended from European sailors now walk South Africa's felt to this day. Sometimes, Cape and later Natal authorities would send expeditions to search for these survivors. For example, Hubbley, who we've just heard about, was a Dutch explorer dispatched by the Cape government in 1790 to find survivors of the Grosvenor and came across a small chiefdom, the Lungu. These were people descended from the Umlungu, the Whites. This term is regarded as a pejorative when used without a smile in my country, and particularly odious when deployed by racist politicians. So, Hubbley wrote in 1790 that this clan was 
descended from people who were shipwrecked there, of whom three women were still alive, whom the chief had taken as his wives. We found a nation descended from whites. We also found there were three old women who said there were sisters wrecked there, and saved when children, but could not say of what nation they were, as they were too young at the time. Of course, they also only spoke Xhosa. I'll come back to the fate of the Grosvenor in a later podcast, but this record is important because even by 1790, the old women of a previous shipwreck were too small to remember where they'd come from, and by this time already had 400 children and grandchildren between them. What's more, they refused to leave Xhosa preferring to stay with their extended family, which makes sense. What were they going to return to in the Cape or Europe? They couldn't speak any of those languages. Their lives were now African, and the offspring were all around them here in Southern Africa. The reason for the hospitality is what we know as Ubuntu, or humanness. Its instinct is the preservation and stability of the whole, and the Xhosa were practicing an ancient human trait. It's working within a code at the time, where even in war, women and children were never killed. You're going to see this in operation during the upcoming 100-year war between the Eastern Cape settlers and the Xhosa. This concept of Ubuntu, however, would be ignored by Zulu chief Shaka in the early 19th century and by many other Nguni peoples, such as the Ndebele, but for other reasons, as we're going to hear over the course of this series. Ubuntu underlined the basis of an intricate code of social law, and its object was to preserve tribal equilibrium. This was not to say that Xhosa land was a garden of Eden. There were many battles, as we've heard in earlier podcasts, between the houses of Paolo, which featured very little Ubuntu indeed. There was a second category of people absorbed into these Nguni chieftains, and they were the refugees from the Cape, including escaped slaves and deserters from the army or navy, as well as convicts. The harshness of Cape justice, as we heard last week, could include decapitation and being drawn and courted back in the 18th century. And also in the 18th century, the gibbet, wheel and rack were still in use and publicly displayed at the fort back in Cape Town as a warning both to settlers and koi. Flogging with up to 100 lashes was a regular punishment for European soldiers and sailors, let alone slaves and koi workers. The rule of Xhosa chiefs was mild by comparison, and the earliest Dutch expeditions began noting their fairly benign rule as distinct from the European model. From the beginning of the 1700s, a regular traffic in ivory and cattle developed between these frontier trek boers and the Xhosa. And you know by now, some of the expeditions from Stellenbosch were not peaceful, and in other cases, the Xhosa or Tembu took exception to large wagon convoys reaching into their territory. When the travelers left the Cape, they would spend up to a year at times bartering and trading, and return with wagons overloaded with ivory. Of course, this eventually wiped out the rhino, elephant and hippo populations on the eastern coastal plains, as the traders and settlers shot them to near extinction. While most were secretive about the routes they took, the 1702 scandal I've mentioned already was going to lead to some changes. That was the battle between 45 young Dutch settlers, supported by about the same number of Khoi servants, who faced around 600 Khoza, and this was not a good omen for the future, despite most interactions being friendly up to then. By 1736, two expeditions had crossed the Kaiskama River up the east coast. One saw four colonists and six wagons trading ivory with the Tembu, and the other was a 13-wagon extravaganza where 11 Dutch and German explorers set off under their leader, a man named Horbenau. Each wagon on the return journey was stuffed with loads of up to a ton of ivory. 
But Hobenauer seriously underestimated the Kloser's military capacity. He was killed with most of his men of the expedition as they crossed the Kai into Kloser land. Later it transpired that that Kloser had eyed the iron on the wagon wheels with great interest, and that Kloser attack was planned to seize these items and then melt them down for weapons and tools. But this didn't stop other trading parties. Farmers came and went without any record back in the Cape of their movements. By 1752, Ensign Butler was dispatched by the VOC to ask about the possibility of trade relations with the Tlosa, only to find he was decades too late. Elephant hunters had an established relationship with the Timbu and the Tlosa, dating back to the late 1600s. Still, these expeditions were few and far between, and as we'll hear, it was only by the 1770s that a regular wagon road had been ground into the felt between the Cape all the way to the Fish River. Travellers who met the Tlosa for the first time were both shocked and amazed. One of the surprising aspects to visitors was the way in which food was handled. The Tlosa used intricately woven baskets to hold milk. French explorer La Vallon was one of the first to be intrigued by these during his trip up the east coast in the 1700s. Each basket was around 14 inches wide, and he wrote, So closely interwoven that they will hold water, and of course milk, as Lavant pointed out. The disgusting copper vessels, which sometimes since were used for milk in Paris, until they were forbidden by the wisdom of the police, and in comparing them, I could not help reflecting how often a powerful city with all its arts, palaces, and great men is distanced by the simple productions of those it may despise. Of course, the milk was actually amasi, or curdled milk, which is a delicacy much loved by South Africans to this day. I grew up drinking amasi, which is a godsend on a blazing hot Zululand day where the temperatures top 40 degrees centigrade in midsummer. The production of this milk, however, would probably have made La Balanque reconsider sipping from the baskets. Warm, fresh milk was poured into sacks made of bullock hide. These smelt of sour milk, and there was always some old milk left behind in the leather sack. Fresh milk would curdle almost immediately and begin fermenting. The job was done by the men, who would then knead, roll, and shake the sack. When opened, the gas generated by the fermentation rose in little bubbles. Later, missionary George Brown wrote that, After drinking about a tumbler of the milk, an almost instantaneous perspiration breaks over the whole body, and after a pretty full draught, I have experienced a kind of headiness for a short time. It was semi-alcoholic, which meant the bacteria would kill off something like typhoid. The men milked the cattle, and they would strip nude, and the process would start at around mid-morning, after the cows had had time to graze at dawn. The young boys would then carry the bags of Amasi to the headman or chief, and these would then be decanted into the finely woven baskets, and those would be dispatched around the settlement, not forgetting any strangers who may be present. From the start of contacts between Europeans and Kosa, the visitors from afar would be struck by the Kosa health, their cheerfulness, vigor, and physical stature. This reflected badly on many European societies of the time who suffered from stunted growth due to restricted diets. The average Kosa man was five foot six to five foot nine at this stage, while most Europeans were averaging five foot four. Early visitors described the Kosa as healthy, their posture straight, their gait sure and firm, and general appearance conveying resolution. Even more descriptive writing at the time pointed out that the Kosa's skin color was diverse, as Reverend Henry Calderwood of the London Missionary Society was to exclaim in the early 1800s, 
It is rather difficult to assign with any certainty their true position among the different races of men. He continued, They are not black, but often light brown, and the form and expression of the countenance is nearly, if not quite, Asiatic. Another missionary by the name of Reverend Stephen Kay wrote at about the same time that their colour is dark brown mixed with a warmer tint of yellow. Their faces approach the European model. Whatever that may be. But you get the point. These people here reflected their diverse ancestry, including Asian and European at times. Nothing we think of as predetermined when it comes to race conforms to our delicate little patterns of definitions, and that's probably a good thing. The people of this part of Africa were fortunate in many ways, unlike their brethren working the land in Europe. They were not formed by manual labor and tillage and the lifting of heavy weights, as in northern Europe, but by the leaner demands of herding, chasing game, and athletic competitions preparing them for battle by charging across the African felt. However, the mores and values of play-fighting were lost sometimes when Europeans at Corsa practiced these games together. For example, Hubbley, who we met a moment ago, decided he'd join a Kosa stick fight on behalf of a village in which he was residing against visitors from another village. The stick fight did not end well. One time, there being visitors, they prevailed on me to play with them, but not being so accustomed to their mode of the game, he hit me some hard blows over the head. Some of my friends, the natives, hinted at my adversary not to strike so hard, but that had no effect for he shortly after gave me a severe blow which cut my head. It appears Hubbley then lost his temper, which is not a good thing when living as a guest in some far-flung village in Kozaland. As soon as I felt the blood run down my neck, I forgot my dependent situation and instantly threw away the stick, closed in and fisted him. But he, not being acquainted with that kind of sport, I gave it to him pretty handsomely. Now it was time for the Tosa warrior to lose his temper, which put my opponent in such a rage that he would inevitably have killed me if it had not been prevented by the people of our village. Manslaughter or murder within Tosa society at that time was dealt with in an interesting way. The logic was based on the fact that all blood belonged to the chief. So if someone killed another, then all his cattle would be confiscated and a fine known as the Isizi would be paid to the chief. Their comments to bemused visitors was, why sacrifice a second life for one already lost? As you're going to hear, this was not a general view of all Nguni peoples of South Africa. Some were far more bloodthirsty when it came to revenge. However, if the murder was committed between two different clans or chieftains, then this could escalate into a battle between these two groups. You see, the concept of loyalty was all-pervasive. Loyalty to the head of the family and in ascending ratio to the head of the clan, then to the added religious veneration of the chief of the tribe. We know, however, that this chief would lose the loyalty if he abused it. It was a balance of life, and into this balanced equation, the frontiersmen, the burghers, would arrive and tip the system on its head. But that all changed in Tosa society if sorcery was suspected. Then the gloves came off and the punishment meted out resembled what Europeans were up to during medieval times. The sorcerers were thought of as murderers and called amatakati, and these were punished by death. For Tosa society, sorcery was an attack on the society as a whole, in the same way that witches were hunted in Europe, and so their actions were thought of as very different from manslaughter. 
two men fighting over a woman, one dying, or an argument that led to a death. The sorcerer, however, was singled out for very special treatment. They had to be sacrificed so that his or her removal from the here and now would protect against calamity. They would be burned to death in the manner of the witch burnings. In other cases, they would be tied over an ant's nest and then left to be eaten alive. In many cases, those with great wealth would be singled out as sorcerers and more vulnerable to the Tlaza brand of execution. Once smelt out by Sangoma, there was little a chief could do. Sometimes his top counsellors were fingered in these smelling-out ceremonies, and they would be forced to flee, as with Chief Sahili's counsellor. We're going to hear about that too. In many cases, in Takati would really be women disliked by other wives, or by their own husbands, or by anyone with any reason to incur the wrath or resentment of the community as a whole. Anthropologists know this mechanism was deployed by societies, including those in Europe and other parts of the world, in order to keep a societal balance, an orderly society, as the foundation of community life. Anyone who makes themselves unpopular could be smelt out. Simultaneously, anyone too popular may find themselves also strapped to an anthill to be gobbled up in a few days. Witchcraft and sorcery makes for stability, as Monica Hunter wrote of the Ponderland people in the 1930s. But Sangomas, who went too far, could also find themselves on the receiving end, so it was a finely balanced craft. Sometimes they would shake their fly switch around a victim or victims and the community would just not believe that the person was a sorcerer. But because the natural order had been destabilized, the Sangoma themselves would be rounded up, caught and killed by the very same methods. Everything has its time and its place, they say. And so do we. We have now reached the end of this episode. Next, we will return to the expansion of the Trek Boers into the Cape Interior between 1740 and around 1770. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You can mail me through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, be safe, and goodbye.